Well, good morning. If you're new to our church family, my name is Jeff Coulter. I serve as lead pastor here, also a member of this church, and so we're glad you're here. We've continued on our series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and this morning we're going to continue there in chapter 7. So as I begin, you can find your way to, uh, to Nehemiah chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you, there's some there in the seats in front of you, and uh, there's no shame in looking at the table of contents. If you're not familiar looking at the Bible, find Nehemiah 7 as we walk through this. I don't know about you, but to echo the, the words of what we sang, God is faithful, right? I hope you, you've recognized that this week in your life, um, and his faithfulness to you in many different ways. Uh, you know, I'm, I was thinking this morning, this is way off topic, but, uh, well, maybe it's still on topic, is just singing with, with, with God's people is such a strange thing if you think about it in our culture, right? If, if someone coming in had no interaction with the church to see us singing together, singing to one another, and what are we singing about? Who are we singing about? You know, it's the Lord and what he's done and how good he's been to us. I think it's such a beautiful thing and a prized thing for us as a church to do, and I've appreciated this morning. For a few moments this morning, I had to stop singing just to listen to you sing, and uh, what a blessing that was to me in my heart. So thankful for you, thankful for you joining us to worship this morning, and we're going to continue to worship in Nehemiah 7, uh, the thrilling chapter of a long genealogy. Are you guys ready? That's what you've been dying for this week, right? A genealogy of names, of which I will not pronounce. Well, before we get there, we'll talk about leadership. You know, leadership is an important issue today. Uh, whenever people gather in any, any form whatsoever, no matter what it is, whether a church outside in the world, leadership matters. Even in the, the weirdest of, of situations, leaders usually float to the top. Someone has to lead. Uh, Mark Dever wrote in, in one of his books that of the 20th century British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, who once stated this, on every committee of 13 persons, there are 12 who go to the meetings, having given no thought to the subject and are ready to receive instructions. One goes with his mind made up to give those instructions. I make it my business to be that one. You see in that just leadership the, the one to, to be prepared to lead in that situation. So what, what makes a good leader? You know, as we walk through the book of Nehemiah, we've seen leadership displayed. And we've seen how crucial it is for God's people to have good leadership. Through the organization of a building project, to the defense of the city, to dealing with the harsh treatment of his own people within the city, leadership has been an important issue for God's people. And so we come to chapter 7, and, and what we find is that good leadership will build a community of believers. The rebuilding of the walls appears to be uh, a preparatory uh, to the reordering of community life around the temple and the liturgy there at the temple and the practice of holiness. The encouragement to, to live lives of purity, moral, ritual, racial to the Lord is crucial for the Jews. And Nehemiah's response to the mounting campaign against him and the opposition to the Jews was to redouble his efforts to, in reforming the city. So when, when he set out to rebuild the walls, he knew that this was just the first step of, of the ministry that he was called to there in, in Jerusalem. The next step after the walls were done was to reestablish a community of people who would live in the city and then worship and gather together as God's people. See, worship 
has always been the goal for Nehemiah. The whole point of redemption is to bring sinners into a place where God is worshipped in a way in which God has set up. God's glory is the chief concern for every created human. And so now with the building complete, we saw that last week in chapter 6, in a marvelous 52 days, which could never happen here in Pierce County or King County, the, the walls are done. The city is protected, and as we'll find out, the gates will be set, and, and the city will be uh, set up from any, any enemies that might come in to, to disrupt things. And Nehemiah has set his purpose now to reform the spiritual life of the community. So here is the main idea. So if you write down anything from this morning, uh, get this. Hopefully this will guide our time as we walk through the text. God matures his people through a biblical community of believers committed to one another. God matures his people through a biblical community of believers committed to one another. And so there's three points as we walk through this. Community leaders, we'll see that in verses 1 through 3 as Nehemiah establishes them. And then community rebuilding, the majority of the text, verses 4 through 69, and then the community giving as we kind of pick up at the very end there, verses 70 through 73. So we're going to just walk through this, and again, if we're not going to read all these names. I don't think you want me to read all these names. You go ahead and turn on the ESV app and let someone who's better prepared to pronounce all these names later. But we'll, we'll walk through this and we'll, we'll give a good sense of what this chapter is about here. So first, community leaders. Let's look at verse 1 uh, through 4. And when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanai and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. We'll, we'll get to that, verse 4, what that means here in a little bit. But the, the fact that he's, he sets this up now, okay, this is finally happening. The community had been, is going to be built back. But before that has really happened, he needs to take care of some very practical needs. Very practical things need to be addressed. Uh, the, uh, the economy of, of these depressed people were, were living in, in shambles within the city at this point, And not many people were living in the city. It was pretty much vacant at this point. So he enlists gatekeepers uh, whose normal work is guarding the entrance of the temple. And now they're to guard the, the city gates and overall security for the people. Uh, I just wake, make one mention there. The reason why he says to lock the gates in, in this time frame is most likely to protect from the enemies who had just made continual threats to Nehemiah. And so that's the, the, the reason why he gives this instruction that was very specific about when to lock the gates. And then he enlists the temple singers and the Levites who would assist in leading God's people in worship. This was the most important part of the rebuilding of the community life in Jerusalem. If you remember now, the last two months have been really focused on one thing, right? To, to finish the walls so that the city is protected and to protect the people. But now Nehemiah is shifting the focus and the surrounding areas would see that there's more life than, than work, manual labor, and money. The greatest priority for the people was to ensure that God was at the heart of their personal 
local and national life. And so he sets up these, these leadership positions. There's the, there's the singers. Any guesses in what they do? You guys are really smart. You're, you're, you're just on it today, right? They would sing. They would help lead God's people in service. You know, singing is a part of worship, right? I, it, I, I've enjoyed that this morning, but it's not everything as a part of the worship service. If the heart is to be inspired in our worship, then the mind must also be informed and transformed. Faith for believers must be grounded in spiritual certainties. And there must be someone who is tasked with communicating those unchanging truths from God's word. So Nehemiah then enlists Levites, and they were placed to lead God's people through the worship of the service. The Levites were, were the worship leaders, so to say, in some way. And they are the ones who would lead the people to understand God's word, at least specifically in this time. And Nehemiah knew that if God's people were going to succeed, he needed others to lead as well, not just those two positions. He understood as a leader that delegation was an important trait and needed to happen if, if the city was to be rebuilt, if the community was to, to grow again. So if the work in the city was going to succeed, he needed to have dependable partners to lead alongside of him and to lead God's people. And so Nehemiah, we read there, emphasizes two essential qualities in, in his chosen leaders at the end of verse 2. Do you see those two listed? Uh, faithfulness or trustworthiness and God-fearing or reverence. Those are two words, if, if that Bible you're holding is yours, to underline, okay? Because those are things that we should take note of. Why does Nehemiah say this? Well, well, trustworthiness was crucial for any work, right? Not just ministry and work for us in the church, but for any work. If, if you own a business here, you, you want to look to hire people that are trustworthy, right? It would be beneficial for you and for your sanity and for your business. But the greater work of renewing Jerusalem's moral and spiritual life demanded that leaders have that similar integrity that would be faithful to the tasks that were given them. This was even more important when other priests and prophets were being manipulated, as we saw in chapter 6, by the enemy for, for money. And then the second one he referenced there is reverence for God. That was the other requirement for leadership. These two qualities are very interrelated in that those who genuinely honor God can be trusted by others. And what, we, what we see in their appointment is that these two leaders put God first in their lives. Hananiah was the governor and a military commander in charge of the city. He was used to giving commands to soldiers. But what we see here is that he's used to receiving commands from his Lord. What we see is that no one else was more important in his life than God. Fearing God more than man is a rich testimony of mature spirituality that is needed to lead God's people. So do these qualities rise to the top when we have some say in our leaders? Not just in the church, but in the world. Well, that's a strange thing to bring out, though, right? I mean, if you're in a business in Seattle to talk about God-fearing, might get you fired, right? But how often do we speak of this? How important is it that leaders, whether in the world or in the church, are God-fearing? 
Is that even on the top of the list of things we look for in leaders? See, what, what set Hananiah apart was not his job abilities, but it was his character. His level of faithfulness and fear of God stood above others. You know, I, I don't know if you've followed the news in the last few years, but there's been a number of, of church issues, not necessarily in our church, but in other churches, the fall of pastors and leaders, right? We've seen some of that just 30, 40 miles north of us in the last five, six years. And I think one of the greater issues is as not so much uh, competency and ability, those people are actually very competent and, and able to serve. The issues that were glossed over was character. A God-fearing man that would, would put himself under God first and not man. See, Nehemiah here doesn't seek yes men to fulfill leadership positions, but he chooses men who demonstrate faithfulness to God above all else. And this should most definitely be on the top of the list for us as a church. We shouldn't seek buddies, just close friends to be in leaders. No, we we should choose faithful, God-fearing people to serve as leaders. We should look for giftedness. Sure, yes, we want gifted leaders, but that's far below godliness. We, we can teach people to, to work in ministry, but it's a lot harder to teach godliness and God-fear. Character should trump everything. Character. And Hanai and Hananiah put the character of God first, and in that sense, they were more God-fearing than others. So they, they made it easy in some ways for Nehemiah to select them because he, he could see in them. John Witherspoon, signer of the Declaration of Independence, put it this way, it is only the fear of God that can deliver us from the fear of man. It is only the fear of God that can deliver us from the fear of man. So once Nehemiah installed these leaders and gave instructions for when to open the gates, what we find out is that he let them lead. Another crucial part of leadership and delegation. They, they were to select the guards and protect the homes and the gates. Nehemiah had to, at this point, to delegate. Otherwise, he wouldn't get everything done that needed to be done. And in some ways, this is, this is part of the work we do in ministry here at the church. I, I learned this years ago when I was training as a missionary, but the job is to always work yourself out of a job. Uh, and that, that, is, that bears much fruit in work of the ministry here, to delegate for others, to trust them to do the work of the ministry. And that's what we see from Nehemiah here. Another quote, Theodore Roosevelt said, the best executive is the one who has sense enough to pick good men to do what he wants done and self-restraint enough to keep from meddling with them while they do it. So if we're going to place people that are competent, God-fearing, faithful in the tasks that we have given them, then, then as leaders we step back and we allow them to function and to serve. And, and with the protection of the city now set and now in the hands of these men, Nehemiah turns his attention now to the repopulation of the city. So that first is the community leaders. Second is the community rebuilding. Look at verse 5. 
Then my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of of those who came up at the first and I found written in it. And now he's going to list out these names. Nehemiah knew that Jerusalem would, would never become a thriving city again if the population didn't grow back. And what we, what we realize at this point just makes sense, rational thought. For years, the city was not a safe place for a family to move in and raise their kids. Walls were broken down. Anyone could come in. Uh, danger was around every corner. And so people were living then outside of the city. They were living in more rural areas, and they had a, a different opportunities then. More land, uh, more opportunities for growth. But things have changed now. The walls have been rebuilt, the gates are guarded, and Jerusalem needs people to move there. And I believe this task would be much more difficult than building simple walls. I would rather, in some ways, try to pick up a 500-pound rock and put it in a wall than convince a human who loves living in rural areas to move to the city. right? You don't believe that? Y'all live in Edgewood or around here. So today I'm going to say, let's move to downtown Seattle. Who's with me? All right. So you all agree. See, this major exercise that Nehemiah is about to do would be excruciating and difficult. See, he wasn't recruiting temporary workers like he did earlier to come into the city for a period of time to work and rebuild the walls and then go home. No, he was expecting people to uproot themselves from the familiar surroundings in order to live in a totally different social environment. Many would leave the neighbors that they knew, friends, even close family connections, even the sharing of resources that they had. And it was not an easy thing. But this must be done if the city was going to survive. I don't know if this has any specific application, but I just keep thinking through. Could we do it? Could I do it? I'm not even worried about you. I'm just thinking about myself. Could I do it? Could I uproot my family and move to the city or a needy area to be a gospel witness? Or am I or are we too comfortable where we are right now? Too set in our ways? Is there too much to give up? Too much to lose? Too much to change for us to do it? You know, the the move for these people to Jerusalem was probably, most likely, the greatest sacrificial act of their life. But as we see later in chapter 11, these people volunteered to do it because they believed in the importance of this specific city and the spiritual opportunity that it brought and the physical security and the social stability and the economic future. Their vision could see farther down the road than their present circumstance, their present situation. It's hard to do sometimes. And now Nehemiah gathers the people, and now using the genealogy that was earlier recounted in Ezra 2, with a few different name changes, and as we see, the life of the community in Jerusalem was to be centered around God and his covenant with the people. And so Nehemiah goes through the list and separates the people out in different groups. And, and again, as I said, I'm not going to read all of this, but 39 has the priests, 40, 43 is the Levites, 46 is the temple servants, 57 is the sons 
of the sons of Solomon's servants, 60, all the temple servants and the son of Solomon's servants are listed there. And you can discuss that over lunch, have a thrilling time. But it is important. You know, I don't want to, I'm being kind of sarcastic here, but genealogies are important. They're, they're there for a reason. God thought so. That's why he put it in the word for us. But why are genealogies important? Why is this one important? Genealogies trace family trees. But, but for them, especially, they, they would help follow the priestly and royal lines through Israel's story. Genealogies, though, especially here, show us that God has a plan, and God's plan always involves people. The genealogy here shows us who is God's people. It, it shows us the reaffirmation of the covenantal promises to God's people. But, but you know, most of you, if you've been in church long enough, genealogies aren't just in the Old Testament. No, when we turn to the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, what do we find there right, right off the bat in Matthew 1? A genealogy, right? Another one. Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does Matthew do that? Well, he's wanting to teach us something, right? He's wanting to point back to, for us to understand who this Jesus is. By linking Jesus to Abraham in this, in Matthew 1, and Matthew is bringing the reader's attention back to the promise of God's rescue plan for the world. And he wants us to see in Matthew 1 that Jesus is the long-awaited son of Abraham who will bring God's blessing to humanity. But how will he do this? Well, he connects it then to, to David. And who is David? He was the king, right? And why is this important? Because there was a king who was to come from the line of David, of which everything hinged on. And so we read the genealogy of Matthew, and when we read that genealogy, we see the royal lineage of Jesus. He is the one who will bring the blessing of Abraham to the whole world. He's the royal son of David that all Israel had been waiting for and longing for. He's the one that the prophets would write about and the psalmist sang about. He will be the king of Israel who blesses all the nations of the world, especially the outsiders. And we know of this because Matthew tells us in a genealogy that carefully reveals the hope that had arrived in Jesus Christ. So including genealogies and stories shows us the importance of what's happening here. But it also shows us, just log it away, that it's verifiable, okay? You can do the work of studying history to find out that what they're saying here is actually true. You can find all this out for yourself. And genealogies also show us that God is faithful. He's faithful to his people. See, the people listed in Nehemiah 7, this genealogy here, were connected to God, and he would not let them slip away. They are brought back into the city, giving the blessings of God's chosen people, and they were to never be forgotten. And yet, when we come to the book of Matthew, I, I know I'm taking you back and forth, God's people might have thought then or believed that God had forgotten them, right? 400 years of silence had transpired. They had endured after all that they have gone through as God's people and their experience in a new type of exile. 
And yet, Matthew writes in a way that hope is bursting through this darkness. In Matthew 1, writing this genealogy, it shows us that light has dawned because a child has come. And Matthew's genealogy has a past, a present, and a future. The same with Nehemiah 7. And in Jesus Christ, as Christians were brought into the family of God, in some ways, Abraham and David become our fathers. It becomes our genealogy, our family tree. We're brought into the family of God. Jesus is the end goal of this genealogy because, friends, Jesus is the point of the Bible. Everything points to him. Everything centers around him. Everything goes from that direction. And so even though we don't see Jesus' name here in, in Nehemiah 7, it all is pointing forward to that day in Matthew 1 when he lists everything out for us to see where our hope lies. But if you read farther down in Nehemiah 7 and into verse 61, you, you find out that not everyone is invited into the city. Not everyone is, is verified, so to say. Look at verse 61. The following were those who, who came up from Tel, Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, Emmer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And verse 63, also the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz. And then 64, these sought the resi- uh, registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. So why does Nehemiah go to great lengths to verify the people of God? See, the, 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 the list of authenticated Jews was the first step taken to validate the identity of the true people of God so that Jerusalem could be purified. So why did it matter who lived in Jerusalem? Why couldn't just anyone live there? Why wasn't it just open to, to all people? Well, the scriptures taught that only a select group could live in the city, those that had their roots in God's chosen people. And Nehemiah wasn't in a position to argue with God and who could come into the city or not. And so they had these records, these genealogies, and Nehemiah follows them to populate the city. And, and, and what we're seeing here in the majority of this chapter is this community formation. And it's a community of those that are part of the covenant. Who is a member here and who is just an attender in Israel? Nehemiah wants to know who is actually ready to represent God's reign in this city. Not only that, but who is qualified to serve the people spiritually. You know, he'll state later, not just anyone can serve in that role. Even if they feel or feel led or passionate about doing it, it doesn't mean that they're called to serve in this way. And so there's, there's a few things I think we can apply to our church today from this text. First, I believe church membership is seen here in this text. You know, the words church membership is biblical even though it's not directly said in the Bible. And, and it's even seen here in faint ways of a deep level of community formation and commitment. Church membership is promising to love and serve one another for the glory of God. It is how the world will be impacted 
as our community of believers here unites together under the same doctrinal beliefs and committed to help and serve each other to follow Jesus Christ. And this only happens when we're identifiable, when we've, when we've stood up to be known and to be counted. And we are known when we're committed to God and to his people that represent him, the church. This is what God is calling us through in Nehemiah 7. As the people leave their prior way of life and commit to the people of God in Jerusalem, they're counted and committed to one another. They're not to live for themselves in this city, but to serve and to live for one another. And our desire, our goal in the church is to see the same in our membership. When we, when we talk about membership, we're talking about committing to a people and a people committing to you. That's why every week we begin our services, whoever does the welcome, if you notice it this morning, mentions that they're a member of this church. They're not saying that they're better than you. So if that's how you're taking it, I'm really sorry, that's not the intention. They are saying that they are committed to the members here and then you as a member can see another person that you're committed to, that you're responsible for. This is why at every members meeting, if you've been here, we recite together the church covenant. And the covenant is a set of, of promises, of commitments that we are making to one another. And we, we go through this every meeting because we want to encourage each other to remind each other what we're committed to. We want to remind each other of the commitment we made to each other when we became members here. This is why we publish a prayer directory. Are you getting a point here? This all connected, okay? We publish a member prayer directory because when you became a member of this church, you committed to pray for the members of this church. And so this is a tool. It's simply something we print to help you to aid you, to, to pray for those that you're committed to in this relationship. And we want to be intentional about our commitment to one another. Church membership is not a club. This isn't Costco. This is a family where we submit under the word of God as it's preached. Where we submit to one another where we submit to the same doctrinal beliefs so that we can do ministry together. And here's the best part. Are you ready? You can get in on this. Church membership is open to every Christian. We, when, we, when we have this, when we talk about it, we want to see church membership is that everyone's a committed Christian. If you're looking for what the bar is, it's to know Jesus. That's what we're looking for. Simple as that. When what we're doing here as a church family is calling people to join the people of God by repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's why we talk about the gospel here. And if you wanted to join the people of God in Nehemiah's day, you would have to separate yourself from the nations and become a Jew. That's what we read in Ezra and Nehemiah. They talk about that. Ezra 6.21 and Nehemiah 10.28. And if you want to be a part of the people of God today, what you need to do is recognize that God is your creator. That he is holy and that you've sinned against him. 
and for your sins you deserve to pay the penalty of your sin, which is separation from God forever. And, and the good news is, because of what Jesus did, because of his death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, if you turn from your sin of unbelief and confess your sin to God and trust in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. You can be a part of the people of God. The Catholic Church, the big C, not the Roman Catholic Church. Don't send me anger emails. The church. And part of the process in, in, of membership here is to help people understand the gospel. And, to, and to, to the best of our ability, affirm that when people have. We should be as vigilant as Nehemiah was about determining who's in and who's out. Not that we determine who's saved, because we can't do that. But all who is already saved because of the testimony of their life. That's what we talk about. That's my favorite part of membership interviews. We can talk about the history. I want to hear all that stuff. But what, I, what really wakes me up in church membership interviews is when the person talks about coming to know Jesus. I'm telling you, friends, you think you have a good job. Mine's better. I get to see and hear on a regular basis how God has saved fallen sinners, and to rejoice in that. It is the best part, right, Pastor Chris? It is the best part. And that's what we do. That's what we talk about, to share their testimony. And if someone is struggling to talk through their testimony, or even possibly they're not a Christian yet, we want to help walk them through the gospel. We don't just say, denied, see you later. That's not caring. That's not gracious. No, we want to walk with them so that they can understand who Christ is. You can understand what Christ has done. So they repent of their sins and trust in him alone. So friends, church membership is helpful for our church. That's why we talk about it. That's why we encourage it. If you have more questions, don't, don't stew in them. Please reach out to us. We'd love to, to sit down and talk about it. But if you're new to our church, if you've been here just a, a few weeks or for months, we'd, we encourage you to spend some time with us first. We, we don't want to push this like you have to do this the first month you're here. We want you to get to know the church family. We want the church family to get to know you. But I do need to caution you. I need to caution all of us to walk carefully through this. I don't, the, the scriptures are pretty clear when we come to the New Testament. We don't want people to be cavalier about walking with God or with the church family. Because as we see in membership, committing to a church in the Bible, we also see a church discipline functioning part of a healthy church also. God gave us this understanding of, of who we are as a church, but also the tools then to deal with those situations of which those have walked away from following Christ. So as a part of this church family, we will walk with one another as we follow Jesus, but if someone sways and strays from the path of following Jesus, it is up to us to warn them and to call them back into repentance and obedience to God's word. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 18. But if someone shows by their unrepentant sin that they do not know God, we want to obey what Jesus said in order to remove them from the church membership so that they are under no illusion about their standing with God. 
we're doing this for their protection. Furthermore, we're doing this for the purity of this church family. We do not want people in our community to look at our church family and see unrepentant sin and begin to wonder what's happening in this church. We are to live lives of purity, of faithfulness, of continual repenting of sin, of walking with Jesus. When sin is brought into our attention in our life, we repent of it. We turn away and we follow him. But if someone lives in unrepentant sin, do you know what I mean by that? It means they refuse to repent and it's a public, verifiable sin. The right thing for us to do as as leaders, as a church family, is to remove them so that they are not confused and, and, and lulled into thinking that they're part of God's people when in fact they're not. So we want to be careful in this and compassionate as we walk through this with people. And this takes every Christian, every, every member of this church. It is not just the elder's responsibility. This is part of the church's responsibility. And the only way we can do this faithfully, friends, is to be involved in each other's lives. It's to be connected to one another. The second thing I want to mention here in this section of this removing at the end of the chapter, is that the standard for serving the temple, the standard for serving in, in, in ministry in this way was very high. It, it wasn't open to anyone. They would need to prove from their genealogy that they were from the priesthood, and this must have been unspeakably difficult for Nehemiah. But the issue at hand was holiness, God's holiness, and, and people needed to realize who they are and why they're here. And this, at the end here, is a great prelude to chapter 8. The, the, the covenant-making ceremony as the law is read and expounded and the people respond with brokenness and consecration before the Lord. What we find out throughout the scriptures is God has always had a standard for who is allowed to and called to serve his people. It's not, um, it isn't for everyone and it's our responsibility as a church to identify those that are living the same way as we've seen earlier of Hananiah, putting character above talent and charisma, putting holiness and godly living at the top of the list. So we've seen the community being rebuilt because of the work and ministry of Nehemiah. And the last point here is the community giving. Look at verse 70. We're almost done. Now some of the heads of the houses, of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 50 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work. And, and then in verse 72, and what the rest of the people gave, and he lists out the, the number. And so the priests, the Levites, verse 73, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, and the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. A few things just to, to mention here as we wrap things up. The first, the, the community gives back to the work of the ministry. And who is the one leading this? Right off the bat, the governor, the, the leader. Friends, leaders lead. And he sets the tone by himself giving. And then also some of the heads of families got on board and showed their acceptance of, of what's going to be transpired in the city. And they gave. And then the rest of the people got involved. And, and no one believed that they were exempt in some way. And you've got to recognize at this point, their giving was very sacrificial. 
Remember, they didn't have their homes quite set up. You can imagine them thinking, all right, I'm leaving my rural home and I'm going to move to the city. So once I get my house set up, then I can give to the work of ministry. But that's not what we read here. They gave sacrificially right at the beginning. See, those who love God's word will not neglect supporting God's work. And, and generous giving for us as a church encourages others to give. And we've seen that. I've seen that in eight years serving this role. How, how generous giving encourages others. God blesses the work of ministry as we sacrificially give to that. And I'm thankful for a church that sees that and has continued to, to, to serve in that way by giving. Well, communities thrive and grow because of good leadership, as we've seen. And, and Nehemiah has displayed, a, through this point, good leadership for God's people. But as we turn the page to chapter 8 next week, Lord willing, we will see how the word transforms and leads God's people into his presence. I want to encourage you to, to really spend some time, every day this week, reading Nehemiah 8. Friends, you'll be blessed. It is a tremendous chapter. Um, you'll be convicted, as I have been, as we read through it. But as you see the impact of God's word on God's people, I pray that we would be impacted as well as we read through it and spend some time studying it next week, Lord willing. We're going to turn our attention to the table, though, this morning. And I want to read a passage of Matthew 26 of the Lord's Supper with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew 16, or excuse me, Matthew 26, verse 26 says this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This morning we have the privilege as a church family to partake of this communion meal, the Lord's Supper. And in this, we remember what Christ has done for us. And so as the ushers come, they're going to come serve us this morning. I want to give a warning again. Friends, if you've been here for some time, you understand this, but this meal is for Christians because only Christians understand and accept the gospel. So, so if you're not a Christian, not following the Lord, faithfully connected to a church family, we encourage you to not partake of this meal with us this morning. And I encourage you to come find me or another one of the, our brothers here to, to talk through this, to talk through the gospel with us. And, and our ushers here, our men, will be handing out the communion elements this morning. And I want to encourage you also, when you have it and we partake, let's do it together, okay? As one church family, let's partake of it together. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you that he is the rescuer that we have been longing for. To come, uh, the, the one that we have been reading of all throughout the Old Testament, we come and we see it's him. And he not only lived and walked with, with us, he died for us. And his body and his blood shed for us on the cross, redeems us from our sins. And then it places us in the family of God. What an amazing thought, Father, that we're in your family. And so may we remember you as we eat this together as we partake of this, 
this meal together. May we remember what you've done for us on the cross, and may we rejoice. For we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.